and I can have an eternal impact on the lives of fellow Christians when we speak out of personal concern with the Word of God in humility and patience, appealing to their wills to respond and obey the truth. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. I'm Bill Wright, and Tom is continuing his current series titled, The One Another's. Throughout this series, we're looking at what it means when Jesus tells his followers to love one another. So far, we've examined the actions and attitudes believers are meant to have when pursuing love for others. Last time we began to look at how our speech impacts the way we love others. One way to advance the cause of love is by encouraging one another. On today's program, Tom will continue his exposition of the three basic commands on how your speech can build up one another. Open your Bible as we join Tom Pennington right now on The Word Unleashed. Those of you who have to travel a lot in business, you know the worst part of the travel is, of course, the airplane flight to get there. You fly in what they call economy. I'm sure there's a better label for that part of the plane than economy. Cattle car came to mind. A couple of other expressions that I won't share, but it's, it's a sad thing to get crunched into that area. I had the, the greatest of hopes to get a little rest and... I really felt for this dear young mother who was seated a couple of rows behind me, the 10-hour flight from here to Zurich, which is where I had a brief layover before I flew to Rome, that 10-hour flight, this little baby cried for at least eight of those hours. And so in God's goodness, I had a lot of time to read. And I seized the opportunity to read a brief biography written back in the 1950s by Thea Van Halsema. Van Housen writes this, the year was 1536. In it, the Dutch scholar Erasmus died at Basel. It was the year when England's Anne Boleyn, the second queen of Henry VIII, lost her head on the chopping block in the Tower of London. It was also the year when a young traveler had to make a detour on his way from Paris to Strasbourg. He stopped to sleep one August night in the city of Geneva. The traveler came to stay a night. He planned to leave unnoticed, but God planned otherwise. The traveler, you see, was a young man in his 20s by the name of John Calvin. He had had to flee France once he had come to faith in Christ because of the terror of the persecution that was happening there against the Protestants. But in 1536, the French government gave a brief period of amnesty where anyone who had embraced Protestantism could return to the country. Of course, their hope was that they would return, recant their faith, and come again to the mother church. But during that time, John Calvin did return to Paris. He put his things in order, and then he left, never to return again in this life. He intended he tells us, to go to Strasbourg. And there his goal and plan was to pursue a peaceful life of writing, a tranquil life 
of letters. But he later wrote to a friend, I have learned from experience that we cannot see very far before us. When I promised myself an easy, tranquil life, what I least expected was at hand. John Piper reminds us the reason he found himself in Geneva was in God's providence there was a war going on. There was a war happening at that very time in 1536 between Charles V and Francis I. And because of the troop movements, the direct route between Paris and Strasbourg was obstructed. And so Calvin took a, just a small detour through Geneva. Piper writes, in retrospect, one has to marvel at the providence of God that he should arrange armies to position his pastors where he would. You see, that one night that Calvin intended to stay in Geneva was a historic night because William Farrell, the fiery leader of the reformers there in Geneva, heard that Calvin was in the city. He found out where he was, and he sought him out. It was a meeting that literally changed the course of history. Calvin tells us what happened in his preface to the commentary on Psalms. Listen to what Calvin writes. Farrell, who burned with an extraordinary zeal to advance the gospel, immediately learned that my heart was set upon devoting myself to private studies, for which I wished to keep myself free from other pursuits. And finding that he gained nothing by entreaties, he proceeded to utter an imprecation that God would curse my retirement and the tranquility of the studies which I sought if I should withdraw and refuse to give assistance when the necessity was so urgent. That's the nice way of saying it. This is what Farrell actually said to Calvin that night as they ended their discussion. Quote, I say to you in the name of the Almighty God, to you who put forth your studies as a pretense, that if you will not help us to carry on this work of God, God will curse you, for you will be seeking your own honor instead of Christ's. End quote. That's direct. Calvin later wrote of his response to those words from Pharaoh. I felt as if God from heaven had laid his mighty hand upon me to arrest me. I was so stricken with terror that I stopped from the journey I had undertaken. William Farrell detained me in Geneva. Of course, he went on to minister in that great city. An unlikely beginning to a friendship, but a beginning it was. A deep friendship grew between these two men, Farrell and Calvin. And it was filled with similar exhortations. Throughout their lives, these two men constantly maintained correspondence in which they encouraged and confronted and challenged and comforted one another. That is to be the pattern of our communication with each other as well. Our friendships within the church are to be characterized by those same qualities. For several weeks, we've been studying those New Testament commands that we usually refer to as the one another's. I've organized most of the 50 or so commands into four categories, and we've labeled those four categories as, number one, motivation. We are to be motivated by love for one another. Secondly, occupation. Our chief occupation when it comes to our interaction with each other is to be to serve one another and to build up one another or to promote each other's spiritual growth. The third word that we looked at was orientation. 
This has to do with our mindset, our attitude toward one another. For example, we are to be humble in our response to each other. We looked in detail at a number of attitudes. You see, many of the one another's detail how it is that we are to speak to one another. They remind us of the constructive power of the tongue. The same tongue that James tells us destroys like a forest fire can also, by God's grace, build others up. Our tongues, our speech, what we say, we are supposed to be instruments in God's hands that promote each other's spiritual growth by what we speak. Now, how can we do that? Well, we discover that there are three basic commands concerning how we are to speak with each other, what our conversation is to be. And if we obey these three commands, we will edify, we will build one another up by what we say. Last time, we studied the first of these three commands about our conversation. The first command was be truthful with one another or speak the truth with one another. And we looked at that in great detail. Today, I want us to look together at the other two commands about our conversation or about how we speak to one another. The second command concerning our conversation is we are to encourage one another. We're not only to speak the truth with one another, we are to encourage one another. The English word encourage means literally to cause someone else to have courage to fill someone else with courage. But the Greek word translated courage that's used throughout the New Testament is a very interesting word. It, it doesn't contain that idea of building courage into someone else, but it's a far more complex word. The word literally means, the Greek word that's translated in courage in a number of places in the New Testament, literally means to call to oneself the best Greek lexicon identifies several distinct senses of this word, and two of its meanings, two of the meanings of this word encourage, are closely related to each other, and both of them are commanded of us. So we could say it this way, to encourage one another takes two similar and yet distinct paths. Let's look at these two paths to encouragement. The first familiar path that this Greek word takes is to encourage by appealing, pleading, and exhorting. To appeal, to plead, to exhort. Several times in the New Testament, we are commanded to encourage one another in this sense. Turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and in verse 11. Paul begins by saying, therefore. Now in context, Paul has just finished a section about prophecy. The end of chapter 4, he's talked about the reality of the return of Christ for his own. In chapter 5, the first 10 verses, he's talked about the coming day of the Lord and how we will be preserved from the wrath of God when that day comes. Verse 11, therefore, in light of that great hope that we have, I want you to encourage, literally, I want you to exhort, to plead with, to appeal to one another and build one another up, just as you are also doing. Paul is saying, I want you to instill courage in each other by appealing to each other to be diligent 
in light of the hope we have, diligent to serve Christ, and to appeal to each other to persevere in your faith as you wait for the wonderful promises of the future. You see the same word in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 13. The writer of Hebrews says, But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Now, those of you who are familiar with Hebrews, you know that this is a warning passage for those Jews who have professed faith in Christ, but are being tempted to return to the old ways, to the old Levitical system, and even to forsake Christ. Now, if they're truly in Christ, of course, that cannot happen. And one way that God ensures that it doesn't happen is through these warning passages. So in this context, here's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. We can make sure that our commitment to Christ stays strong by encouraging or by appealing to one another day after day, by exhorting one another day after day. That's what the writer of Hebrews was saying. He's saying, listen, there are there in that assembly where you are gathered together, you Jewish people who've come to faith in Christ. There are those who are weak. We need to appeal to each other day after day to stay committed to Christ and to the faith that we've embraced because we could be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Paul Tripp, in his excellent book, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hand, he writes this, There is something in each of us that places us in danger. And because of that, we need the daily ministry of others. That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. Encourage, appeal to each other day after day. Over in Hebrews chapter 10, he makes the same basic point. Chapter 10, verse 24 He says, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our assembling together, as is the habit of some, but instead encouraging one another, that is, pleading with one another, exhorting one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, if you and I are going to properly appeal to each other as we're commanded to here, there are several key elements to this appealing or pleading or exhorting. Let me give them to you. Number one, it should always spring from genuine personal concern. It should always spring from genuine personal concern. The literal meaning of the word is personal. It means to call someone to your side. But if you really want to see what this word looks like, turn to Philemon, the little letter Paul wrote and sent with Onesimus. Philemon, just before the book of Hebrews, in verse 8 of the letter to Philemon, he writes, Therefore, though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do the right thing, that is to take Onesimus back, yet for love's sake, I rather, here's our word, appeal to you, since I am such a person as Paul an old man and now a prisoner of Christ Jesus. He says, I appeal to you. There's this element of personal concern in this word. If you're going to appeal to someone else to do the right thing, then it must grow out of this personal concern. Secondly, it should be based on Scripture. If you're going to appeal to someone else, it should always be based on Scripture. Look back at 1 Timothy chapter 6. 
First Timothy chapter 6, verse 1. He's speaking here about slaves and masters in verse 1. He continues in verse 2 with that same theme. But notice the end of verse 2. This is common in the pastoral epistles. He says, teach and preach these principles. Here he's talking to Timothy. Timothy, I want you to teach and preach these principles. These principles, literally these things, is an expression that usually refers to what precedes it. Here, probably a reference to all of chapter 5. And he says, Timothy, I want you to teach, first of all. The word teach is the simple communication of the truth. He says, I want you to take the truth, and I want you to set it in front of the people. What I've just shared with you, you set it in front of them. You teach them. And then I want you to preach. Now, that's, I think, a poor translation of the word, because it's our word to plead with to appeal to, to exhort, to encourage. It literally means to appeal to those who have been taught the truth to apply it to their lives. That's what it means to appeal or to exhort. You've already taught them the truth, Timothy. That's I'm commanding you to do. You set the truth before them, and then you appeal to them to take that truth and to do something with it, to apply it to their lives. But notice that it has to be based on what's been taught, on the truth of what's taught. So, exhortation or appealing or or pleading with others springs from genuine personal concern. Secondly, it must always be based on Scripture. Thirdly, it should always be accompanied by the right attitudes. Back to 1 Timothy chapter 5. Here we get the feel for what this should look like. 1 Timothy 5.1 Paul tells Timothy how to relate to the men in his congregation. He says, do not sharply rebuke an older man, but rather appeal to him as a father and appeal to the younger men as brothers. He's saying, listen, don't come in, Timothy, throwing your authority around and say, get in line because I'm in charge. Instead, you appeal to them out of personal concern with the Scripture to apply the truth to their lives and to do the right thing. And if it's an older man, you do it as you would your own father. If it's men your own age, you do it as you would a brother. The spirit or attitude that we're being encouraged to use here is humility. If we're going to exhort others, if we're going to appeal to others to apply the truth in their lives, to apply the truth they know to their lives, we have to do it in a spirit of humility. There's another attitude in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Another proper attitude we should have. You're familiar with 2 Timothy 4. Paul is telling Timothy he's to preach the word, verse 2. He's to be ready in season and out of season. In other words, preach the word when it's popular and when it's not. I also think he's saying, Timothy, preach the word when you feel like it and want to and when you don't feel like it and don't want to. And then he says, I want you to reprove. Reprove means to convince somebody that they're in sin or in error to correct their thinking about their choices. And I want you to rebuke. That means to tell them to stop. Tell them to drop the error or to stop the sin. And then notice how he ends verse 2. And exhort, there's our word, appeal to, plead with, and do all of this, Timothy, with great patience. Literally, with all patience and instruction. Notice the word instruction. 
There's always got to be content on which our appeal is based. But notice that all preaching, all reproving, all rebuking, all appealing, all exhortation are to be based on solid teaching and are to be done with great patience. Humility and patience. So if we're going to appeal to someone we know to take the truth that they know and apply it to their lives, then we must do it from genuine personal concern. We must base it on the Scripture. We must accompany it with the right attitudes of humility and patience. And finally, biblical exhortation should always have as its goal the will. This is true exhortation, true pleading, true appealing. You're trying to get to the person's will. You're trying to say, I want you to make a change. I want you to put the truth into action. You can see this in a number of places in the New Testament, but turn to Acts chapter 2. Let me just show you a couple of these. Acts chapter 2, at the end of Paul's sermon on the day of Pentecost, you remember they cry out, what do we do? And he says, repent. And then after that, we're told in verse 40 of Acts 2, and with many other words, Peter solemnly testified and kept on appealing to them, exhorting them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. He said, please, take what I'm saying to heart. Embrace it. He's pleading with their wills. You can see it in other ways. In Acts chapter 16, verse 9, the Macedonian vision. You remember a vision appeared to Paul in the nine, and a man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. He was saying, Paul, I want you to make a decision and do something. Luther, in describing this word exhortation or appealing, said, The teacher transmits knowledge. The exhorter stimulates. We are to plead. We're to urge. We're to exhort each other to obey the truth. And although we're all supposed to do this, Exhortation is even a spiritual gift that certain Christians have in a greater abundance. Romans chapter 12, verse 8 says there's somebody who has the gift of exhortation, the gift of doing this, of appealing with people to apply what they know and to put it into practice in their lives. But this was the pattern of the early church. Let me just show you how much this work of appealing to people, of urging them, was part of the early life of the church. Turn back to Acts for a moment. Acts chapter 11, verse 23, Barnabas comes to Antioch, and when he arrived, verse 23 says, and witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced and began to encourage them, to plead with them, to appeal with them all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. This was Barnabas's ministry to the church in Antioch to appeal to them, to plead with them. Chapter 14, verse 22. Paul here with Barnabas, verse 21 says, after they preached the gospel to that city and had made disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. Verse 22, strengthening the souls of the disciples. How? Encouraging them, pleading with them, appealing to them to continue in the faith and saying, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. This is how Paul and Barnabas strengthened the disciples for persecution. 
was by appealing to them. Chapter 15, verse 32. Judas and Silas, also being prophets themselves, appealed to the people and strengthened the brethren. I love this. With a lengthy message. See, it's, it's biblical. It's biblical. This kind of pleading, this kind of appealing was also at the heart of Paul's ministry. Acts 20. You see it in verse 2. And when he had gone through those districts and had given them much, here's our word, exhortation, much appeals, he came to Greece. Tom will bring you part 10 on our next broadcast as he once again takes us to God's Word. And we'd love if you joined us then. Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And don't forget to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do that by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.